No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. If you haven't joined us previously, this is a podcast where we talk about books that are too long, and we do it for a time that is also too long. Uh, this time will be a little different, just because we're going to read through uh, or talk through Haunting of Hill House, um, which is a smaller read. It seems appropriate for this time of year, and also uh, it's a book that I dearly love. Um, Bill and I are basically just two friends who like books a lot, so if you don't know us, that's basically our background. <laughs> uh, this book especially is in, uh, important to me just because I think it was one of the first horror books I read that I, I thought was maybe something very unique and different and literary and yada, yada, yada. But um, I did want to just start out, I guess, uh, unless you have anything to add, Bill, maybe we could just start out with a, a recap of what the book is so that people can kind of follow along if they haven't read. Um, and if, you know, if you're at a place where you can do this, I always recommend opening a Wikipedia page or, or whatever, just because we're probably going to get specific. And when we do, you know, apologies as always. But yeah, any, any recap you have of the book, Bill? Yeah, so The Haunting of Hill House is written by Shirley Jackson, who was an American writer who wrote in the sort of early in the middle of the 20th century. Um, uh, this book was published in 1959. It's been adop adapted for the screen twice, both times called The Haunting. Once in 1963, and a lot of people like that one. Once in 1999, starring Owen Wilson and Catherine Zeta-Jones. I know. I was no going to say that one. So that that's I remember that because my brother was like obsessed with Catherine Zeta-Jones. He was like the right age to be very like teenage boy crush, and I think he watched it and declared it the worst movie of all time. And it just has like stuck. I remember the trailer for that movie so well, which is one of those stupid things in your childhood you can't get rid of. Um, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. No, yeah. Big part uh, of my childhood I apparently. <laughs> I haven't seen either of the movies, but uh, the 1999 one is, is widely reviled, both as its own thing and as an adaptation of the book. Right. Most recently, a week and a half ago, Netflix released a 10-part TV show called The Haunting of Hill House, which really doesn't have a heck of a lot to do with the book, but uh, people have been talking about it. I would point out that we decided to do this book before we knew there was a Netflix TV show adaptation we, coming we out. We really did. We really but, did. <laughs> I'm happy to capitalize on the cultural zeitgeist uh, for those sweet, sweet... Uh, they're not page views because it's a podcast. I'm not sure what the SoundCloud term is, but you get it. Uh, I did watch the TV show. I don't think Joel has yet, so no. we might talk about it a bit later, but we won't go into incredible detail, although I probably will have to complain about the ending a bit. Uh, so we'll put a spoiler tag before we go into detail on that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the I book think... is... Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so actually, before we even jumped into the book, I, I realized I, the Zeitgeist comment made me think about, um, I, it's been a weird, tra tra you know, trajectory for, I feel like, Jackson's career, because she was, she was very popular 
you know, during um, her actual lifetime. But there was this way in like which she was also sneered at. Like at one point she was called Virginia Werewolf, which is meant to be a insult, but is just amazing, I think, <laughs> as like a weird compliment. And so I, I want to recap the book, but I guess I actually just thought like, I think it's, I don't know, I think there's this weird moment that she is speaking to more and more where I feel like genre fiction has become, you know, it's obviously become a bigger and bigger deal within the literary scene, but she herself seems to become becoming one of those figures who's not just like, you know, kind of a an, a, a classic on the edge of the conversation. She seems to be becoming more and more the center of like what we talk about when we talk about like 1950s fiction or feminist fiction. You know what I mean? So like it's it's weird. It's been a weird transition because even I feel like within my lifetime, like I read the lottery when I was in high school, I think. And then even since then, it feels like, you know, her star has only risen higher and higher. So I don't know. So it feels I, she feels appropriate to talk about for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of which is that the book is very, very good. <laughs> That's the yeah, main reason. Just a very good um, book. So yeah, so let's yeah, which I yeah, we should recap. I just wanted to get in. I realized the zeitgeisty thing is like she's of the moment because of this Netflix show, and also she just seems to be more and more important to like I don't know the art world, the literary world, or whatever. There's something that she hits on that seems very you know maybe uh, resonant with today's sort of uh, hot topics. But yeah, so the book is yeah. book is a hunting house book. What else is it about? <laughs> So the other quick thing I'd say is I think she's always been very well respected in sort of the horror writing community. I think maybe the biggest horror award, certainly one of them, is the Shirley Jackson Award. Like so, she's she's, oh, yeah. she's always been very important in that in that regard. But I think you're right. I've seen a lot more of her showing up in sort of the literary. Uh, not that I'm an expert in that field, but she shows up a lot more on Lit Hub now than I might have expected. Has no, that? and I mean, yeah, um, she, and well, and so Neil Gaiman, Stephen King, the big writers who are not as good as writers as, as she is, um, like Stephen King and his, he's a he's a nonfiction collection of essays, um, all about like you know the most important horror titles. I, I can't remember what it's called right now, but um, he writes a big passage on her and says it's one of the finest you know horror stories written in the 20th century. And it, I mean, it is that, but of course, like the Virginia Werewolf joke. Why I think that's not a joke is because she was so clearly from the beginning, you know, doing something that is is hard to do for any book, period, which is like kind of plumb these technical depths in service of these human, you know, questions. And she does it with all these ghosts and weird stuff. And, it, and what, I guess what makes it so unique, which we'll get to, is it never feels cheap. You know what I mean? It never feels yeah. like a cheap move. So, okay. <laughs> and, sorry. So The Haunting of Hill House is a classic horror story that she thought of when she was reading Victorian literature, um, and specifically a real report about Victorian, you know, ghost hunters, basically. But um, you're good at recaps. Do you want to just give a quick summary of, you know, what like what the actual like plot or characters are? So the book, of course, is about Hill House, which is a, a big, ridiculously large house in... I don't think she explicitly says where it is, although I, it's got kind of a New England vibe. Um... And it was built about 80 years before the story starts by this guy, Hugh Crane. Um, and, of course, there were various tragedies in the house afterwards, as we learn. But the, the the way the book actually goes is there's an anthropologist named Dr. John Montague who really studies what we might call paranormal phenomena. And he's gathered a group of people to meet him at the house and stay there for a while to just kind of see what happens. And so the people who show up are um, Luke Sanderson, who actually is the person who currently stands to inherit okay. the house. Um, there's a woman named Theodora. And okay, uh, what we know about fine. her is that she okay. maybe is psychic. She ha- she she scored well on a lot of those sort of ESP tests that apparently were a thing in the 50s and 60s. You know, identifying the right number of cards behind a 
a screen and that kind of thing. And our protagonist and, and the person the book is really about, who is Eleanor Vance, who is a, I think she's 32, and she's spent the last like 10 or 12 years basically just taking care of her very sick mother, who just died, I forget exactly, but relatively recently before the story starts, and is now just this kind of quiet, alone person with no clear picture what she's doing with her life, who's treated pretty poorly by her sister and such. Uh, Dr. Montague invited these people because they have either some connection to the house or some sort of documented connection to some kind of paranormal phenomenon. When Nellie was a little girl, about a month after her father died, um, stones fell on the house for several days for no obvious reason, and uh, her mother insisted it was all the work of the neighbors. Um, <laughs> classic classic neighbor problem. That's yeah, what we learned about neighbor there. vandalism. <laughs> yeah, who could forget about neighbors throwing thousands of stones on your house? Happens to me all the time. Uh property law abounds with these disputes uh, but anyway they show up and they intend to spend a few weeks there um and they pretty quickly they hate the house the house is is evil and gross uh just by looking at it the first time eleanor sees it she is pretty convinced the house is evil and wants to leave but she stays um and the house the story really kind of contrasts both eleanor's sort of psychological state with what's happening in the house and there's uh, probably a lot of debate whether they're literally connected as though Eleanor is causing some portion of the phenomena or whether it's just having an effect on her. But as they get all your sort of traditional haunted house tropes, people knocking on the doors, hearing laughter in the in the hallway, at one very famous point, um, Ele- Theodora moved her room into is sleeping in Eleanor's room because of some stuff that's happened. And uh, they hear things happening outside and Eleanor reaches over and holds Theo's hand for a long time only to discover at one point that Theo's not right there. She's some distance off. You know, right. whose hand was I holding is uh, one of the best punchlines yes. in the book for the sort of real scares. Um, eventually, Dr. Montague's wife shows up, and she's kind of your traditional haunted house medium. She does a lot of stuff with a planchette. She's really insistent on getting in touch with the spirits. And uh, the book's pretty clear that she's not doesn't have any idea what she's doing. Uh, and that... Is sort of particularly unpleasant the way it aligns with with Eleanor because Eleanor is really starting to lose it here because this is the first time she's ever felt any connection to other people and the house and she's getting into a conflict with Theo about the sort of trying to vie for the affections of the young man uh, Luke although it's pretty clear that that's mostly in her head and that Luke is not really trying to do any moves on her and it ends with uh, her having kind of a breakdown and running around the house knocking on doors and running up to the library she has to get rescued uh, because she's run up this very rickety old staircase. And everyone else in the house realizes pretty reasonably, I think, for a horror novel, that something terrible is happening to Eleanor and they need to right. send her away so she doesn't get hurt. She really doesn't want to go and insists again and again and again that she has a connection to the house now and she doesn't want to go. And so when they send her to drive off, at the last minute she turns her car, you know, accelerates her car into the tree uh, off the path and, and dies. Um and there's some debate in her last minutes how much of that she wants to do and how much of it is the house kind of steering her into doing it. But uh, it happens, and then the book is over. Uh, it's really it's pretty short and to the point. It's It doesn't spend a lot of time delving into why the house is haunted. That's not what it's about. It's just about this sort of psychological portrait of this, of this woman kind of coming apart at the seams. And uh, I've liked, I think, all the books we've read so far on this podcast, but this is the one that it's going to be the hardest for me not to just sort of fanboy out about for three hours, uh, because it's just a really good yeah, book. <laughs> no, it really, it really is. I mean, she's, um, she's got, she got, she's got various gifts as a writer. I mean, she's got lively, fun dialogue. She's got great descriptions. I mean, she's funny. 
right when you wouldn't expect it to be funny, which is always the funniest moment, of course, you know what I mean? And so, um, like, the introduction yeah. of Mrs. Montague is just comic genius in some ways. I mean, it's, it's a little it's a little hammy at times, but um, it's just the perfect moment to, like, to introduce a new figure and to complicate how we're viewing the house and how we're viewing Eleanor. And she's just, yeah, she's good at a lot of different things. Um, and I, I have a lot of <clears throat> I have a lot of different thoughts, and I thought I was going to start, start, start somewhere else, but... I actually want to ask you as our first kind of question is, is this book scary? Right? Cause it's like this, it's like this, you know, horror novel, supposedly it's a ghost story, but everyone always likes to undercut its horror credentials with how basically intelligent it is about the human mind and the ways in which, you know, the psychological, or I would even say like spiritual preoccupations kind of, you know, they seem to be more the meat of the story than the actual haunting per se, people seem to argue. So I, I just want to, I mean, I'm just curious what you think. I have my own thoughts. Like, is this book scary? Yeah. So I think people like to, <laughs> I'll promise I'll answer your question, but on sort of an adjacent note, when like a lot of these more cool indie horror movies that have been coming out in the last five or six years, you'll almost always catch someone saying, I'm not sure it's even really a horror movie because it's so smart. They'll say that about get out or about the witch or about a quiet place. And of course, that's just snobbery, right? It can be a horror right. movie and very smart. Uh, but I think you're right. I think people like to try to differ away, or sort of distance away from whether or not the book is is sort of a bone chiller because they want to they want to emphasize all of the intelligence in the writing, and I think that's silly. I think it can be both. To answer your question, yeah, I think the book is scary. I don't think it's the absolute scariest thing I've ever read. Like I wouldn't. Apparently, it wins a lot of records as the scariest. You know the scariest book of the twentieth century, and I'm not sure that's right. Uh, but I do think it is legitimately scary, um, particularly in the way it deploys tropes, which at this point feel kind of boring, like just knocking on doors. You wouldn't really think are still scary, but the first night they're in there and all the doors are shaking and they're not sure where the other two people in the house are is legitimately upsetting. And particularly the moment when she realizes she's not holding Theo's hand, she's holding somebody else's hand is, you know, I I was upset. It was good. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I actually agree. I mean, so I, I, I think the first time I read this, weirdly enough, the first time I read it, I wasn't sure if it was scary because I think so. Like, I think like the non-snob version of why you would undercut its horror credentials is because it's asking you to think about so many other things that yeah. like I was so fascinated with the descent um, into into uh, by the way into either madness or happiness that eleanor is having <laughs> which we should talk about later but the, whatever descent eleanor is on which is clearly negative in some grand scheme and yet weirdly complicated you know like even the hand holding like it's about her relationship with theo right so like it's this it's it's potentially this really beautiful not beautiful but this really like intimate scene that turns horrific and yet that to me still feels like a commentary on her relationship with Theo, that she's so desperate for this intimacy that's not real at all, right? The intimacy is totally her projection onto the relationship. It's not something that exists. And so, like, I think that captured so much of my thought the first time through that I was like, oh, that is, you know, that's a cool move. And so the second time, when I read it this weekend, basically, um, I don't know why, maybe just because I was more, I was more, you know... I, I disarmed by everything else that like, I, yeah, I wasn't a jump scare by any means, but it definitely like I was reading it at night, you know, everyone's asleep and uh, it was creepy. It was creepy to have that ending note of the chapter that whose hand was I holding? Or um, there's a couple other times, you know, I, yeah, that she just like the knocking actually is effective. And even the other scary part that is not scary so much as like disturbing is you already kind of mentioned it. So by the end of the novel, Eleanor has, has sort of, 
accepted um, the house, right? Like the house sort of takes possession of her, it seems like. Um, but there's a, there's a scene in which that happens. When so she and the doctor and Luke and Theo are all in a room and the house is basically like, they call it dancing around, shaking. It's like violent, right? And she sort of blacks out into this crazy, you know, moment. And I thought that was really sort of effective as like a, I don't know, it, it seemed really like alarming, if not exactly scary. But, um, but I do think it's scary. I think the scariness too is that it's one of those books that you read and like, uh, you know, you think about it later and you're like, you know, like there's a moment, there's a moment when you read it, but there's also that great imagery that just sticks with you for so long after. Um, but I do think, yeah, I think people, I think people totally underestimate how much that's part of this book's success, you know, like that it is a legitimately scary, good horror story um, that my introduction, I think with the same book, my introduction compares to the ghost stories of, of Henry James, which I don't know if you've read Turn of, Turn of the Screw or anything, um, but I think that's really accurate because Turn of the Screw was less scary than this book, but um, Henry James is kind of a famous story about, okay, spoiler ghost children or ghost maybe children who knows um and uh it's really you know it's a really unsettling book but it's you know she is i think more impressive to me because she does almost the commercial thing where she makes it actually scary there's an actual plot and she gets to do all of her literary bag of tricks you know what i mean like why who wouldn't want to do both why not have an entertaining book that's also this well written does it make sense yeah, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, so I do think, I mean, so, yeah, so, um, I did want to ask you, so we should, I mean, the, I feel like a lot of this, we should be talking about Eleanor. So I just wanted to ask you, like, so the other big question that we have, right, is the big debate of this book is Eleanor has displayed maybe like, you know, stuff in the past as far as like the rocks, like you said, falling on her house, the stones on her, in her house, like she's displayed some sort of psychokinetic ability, potentially, who knows? And the book seems to really, the horror stuff in the book seems to really trace her own descent. Like more than once she talks about how are they hearing a noise that's inside my head? You know, the knocking that happens in the house, I think it takes on a much scarier, you know, um, valence because she talks about her mom basically died knocking for her, right? So her mom was knocking and knocking and knocking. Eleanor's in a different room and Eleanor didn't wake up or did. We don't know. And her mom died that night. And so the knocking takes on this very personal aspect that seems completely projected from inside Eleanor. And so I think the second big question that's maybe not answerable but interesting is like, is this house, you know, haunted or is it just weird and Eleanor's haunted? Yeah, and we talked about this actually very briefly on our stand podcast because I had just read the book for the first time right before that. Uh, and I, you know, I'd have to... I did read it more carefully the second time when I just finished it recently, but I, I wasn't really trying to to do the, the nerd thing and try to analyze every sentence right, of what really right. is happening. Cause I actually hate that stuff, but um, I still think my answer is the same. I think the house is haunted and Eleanor is, is in some way, uh, and you know, the worst X man, right. Is in some way getting gifted or haunted. <laughs> and so the house seizes on her and they kind of draw on each other. Does that make sense? I think there's for one thing. I think the book is, I, the book is very subtle about a lot of things, but the book isn't subtle that the house is evil, right? The book is never like, yes. is this house bad? Who knows? The book's like, no, Eleanor sees the house and it, it's the house is evil. The house is vile. I should get out of here. The first paragraph, which uh, is so good and they close the book with is Hill House is not sane. Uh, you know, he talks, Dr. Montague talks about how nobody has ever rented the house for more than a few days. So I think it would be, 
very surprising for there to be nothing wrong with the house. But well, I do and... think that you're right. It, it tracks Eleanor's descent so carefully that I think the house, either it targets her uh, or they sort of feed on each other to make the things happen the way they do. Well, and so I think what's interesting, too, is that this becomes a matter of, like, how you view the the narrator's perspective or the POV that's being used throughout yeah. the book, right? Because, like, it's cl- it's clearly mostly a close third on Eleanor. And so, but it, it does zoom out, you know? It zooms out. Um, so, like, all of a sudden you hear what Mrs. Dudley is doing in town, you know? Yeah. Or um, in the book, like you said, the sentence that you're referencing, um, to me, though, the sentence you're referencing, like, there is a third-person narrator who is obviously outside of Eleanor. And I think it's a pretty, it's a little wibbly wobbly with, with when that is being invoked and when it's not. Um, and that I think is probably a strength, even though I actually think what it really is, is probably a weirdly dated thing that we don't, we don't um, find in fiction as much anymore. I feel like nowadays it's like, you know, people were so used to omniscient narration in the fifties and forties that to drop out of it and to drop back into it, was not maybe as jarring as it is now when everything is so like tightly third or, you know, big, you know, first person or, you know what I mean? Like it was just a little more, omniscient was a little more default. And so, but for me, it still is clear to me that like Hill House itself, not sane, stood against its hills, holding darkness within. Eleanor's dead at that point when that sentence is written at the end. Like, I don't feel like that's a, <laughs> it's not like an ambiguous statement on, you know, the, the Hill House experience, right? Um, because I also think the house has to be haunted for, I think this weird, uh, Eleanor ending to be as tragic as it is. And I'm curious what you think about this. Like, I I think in the end, like, um, should they send her away? You said it was very sensible earlier, but like, she's happy is what she says. Um, and everyone else sends her away alone (laughs) to be by herself. And she basically commits suicide as soon as, or does she? But like, I I don't know. I'm just curious. Like, I think the power of that's lost, but I'm curious what you think about, the weirdness of the fact that like the ultimate, you know, the ultimate haunting of Eleanor finds her the happiest she is in the entire book, which I thought was a, again, a smart move. I don't know. It's just so good. It's just so good. Cause Eleanor has, is a very lonely person, you know, that reiterate, it's not, again, not subtle about this. It's not, it's just, Eleanor is looking for something to do. This is the first time she's made a decision on her own to go do something. She kind of steals the car. Uh, that's sort of, you know it's her car too right so steals probably isn't the right word but she at least thinks of it as stealing the car like the other person has told her she can't have it um and finally she's part of something she's she's part of one of my favorite moments and i'm gonna have to grab it real quick is early on the first chapter or two of this book the whole thing is great but the first like 30 pages should be i don't know wherever we keep the most important things ever written it should be there because it's just (laughs) so freaking good I can't grab it immediately, but, you know, I am, there are four of us and I am one of them. You know, here I am, I am, I am part of this group. She reiterates again and again and again in the first few scenes there together. So she's, first of all, just so happy to be part of something because she's happy to be part of the sort of ghost busting crew. But then at the end, as that kind of frays a little bit and it realizes she's kind of putting more into the relationship with Theo in particular than is actually there. And she kind of wants something romantic to happen with Luke because she's never had a romantic experience before she feels like she's kind of part of the house, right? Like the last chapter or two, she's kind of, she talks about being able to feel the things that happen in the house. She can, she she talks about it as though she can hear, you know, the, the rats scurrying down here and the, and the house settling and the stove settling and just the, 
everything except for the library, uh, she's sort of becoming part of the house. And so she's no longer right. alone. Right. And she has this sense of being part of something, which is what she's been looking for the entire book. And the, the recurring sort of ghostly lines are Eleanor, come home, please, Eleanor, come home, help Eleanor, come home. She's finally coming home and they send her away. Um, and so I guess when I said it was sensible, I mean, you know, this book doesn't rely on people making terrible decisions the way a lot of bad horror stuff does. Right. right? They try to, yeah, they try and stick together. They don't go outside at night. Yeah, they, the characters are like your classic horror-watching fan who's like, don't go in the shed. They don't go in the shed for the most part, right? They stay yeah. in sensible locations together. And so what I mean, you know, when they see, oh, Eleanor's going, you know, something terrible is happening to Eleanor. She, No one has actually gotten hurt yet, but she just almost fell down off of this rickety staircase we should send her away and we shouldn't send somebody with her because she's attaching to us, at least makes sense, right? I don't know if it's the right call, but it at least, you well, can understand why it happened and it's not a sort of knee-jerk reaction. But. And I, th- I think in that moment too, like, so she's climbing, right? She's trying to climb out and to the place where supposedly um, one of the previous owners hanged herself, right? I think yeah. that was also the implication is that she's clearly aiming at this sort of reenaction of self-harm or potentially. I mean, everything is, that's the thing that, that Shirley Jackson can't get away from it. She's never going to give you a definite, you know, I don't yeah. know, a definite scan on something, right? So like the, none of the characters say, oh no, she's going upstairs to hang herself. Shirley Jackson expects you to remember that like I've pointed out that this is the promontory where someone hung themselves four times Eleanor's now part of the house and climbing the stairs like you've got to put that meaning in it yourself otherwise this book's not for you basically um of course my favorite part is we don't even know for sure that's where the previous person hung themselves right exactly and and, you know and the rumor in the town is that the dr montague says the rumor is that she hung herself from the turret and i guess i can't get it quite right but he says but then again i feel like if you hung yourself in hill house everyone would have to say that you hung yourself from the turret because you have a turret here and that's what it's for you know (laughs) right no and i think so i think yeah the whole eleanor question i mean I, i think obviously the right choice is to send her away from like a practical standpoint but even that moment is complicated because um, so Mrs. Montague, who is the doctor's wife, she shows up with this like buffoon of a partner, Arthur, and they're sort of like your your classic parody of ghost hunters, right? They have a planchette and they talk about spirits wanting love um, and they sort of make fools of themselves and they have one real experience, but mostly they're kept at distance from the real horror and uh, heart of Hill House. But actually in the moment that Eleanor is being sent away, Mrs. Montague keeps saying, Arthur should drive her. Arthur yeah. should drive her. And Dr. Montague says, no, she must distance herself from this on her own. And he, he's totally wrong, right? I, mean, I think he's wrong because if she had someone drive her, especially someone who's not part of their foursome, she still yeah. would have had distance from Hill House and she probably wouldn't have crashed into a tree. <laughs> um, so I, I, I just love the way that like no one likes so Miss Montague is mostly a, a straightforward caricature until this one moment where her common sense and her kindliness comes through. Do you know what I mean? Like someone should drive this girl. Like she's still overbearing, but she's right. And she's right for the right reasons. If that makes sense. Yeah, Um, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, and that's a good point. None of the characters are ever able to just be one thing, right? Like you can reduce, like you Google stuff online. You see a lot of people saying, you know, Theo represents Eleanor's uninhibited self and sure, but she's also a character, right? Like she's also right. her own person. <laughs> yeah. No one person is ever just reduced to one reading. Um, well, and I, I, so that's actually, that picks up on something that I think. So part of that I think is due to the fact that like, so the wibbly wobbliness of the narration where it's like omniscient, but also mostly Eleanor, I think Shirley Jackson, and I'm sure she does it mostly through instinct as opposed to, you know, strategy, but her instincts are so good because she uses that wibbly-wobbliness or that fluidity um, to really, to, to unsettle 
exactly who each character is because sometimes it's like eleanor is sort of vamping on who she thinks luke is or might not be yeah and sometimes eleanor seems super accurate like she thinks luke is very selfish and then he plays out that like yeah luke does seem pretty selfish other times you know she makes a claim that could be true but it's such a general claim who knows and so i think that if she hits the sweet spot Charlie jackson where like eleanor's not insane but she's your classic like um unreliable narrator to some extent right where like you mostly believe what she's seeing is happening but it's also clear that there's this layer of eleanor strangeness that she's putting over everything Uh, um in a way that Shirley jackson most does that where she like keeps you grounded in the moment but then pulls you out it's really simple like on on page 122 you know, uh, Eleanor and Luke are talking and they're having a normal conversation. And he says, you know, I suppose you can understand that, you know, this thing they're talking about. And then there's a big paragraph where she's like, no, she thought you're not going to catch me so cheaply. I don't understand my words. This man is a parrot, you know, I will not make a fool of myself. And then she says, I understand. Yes. Do you know what I mean? So like there's this great back and forth where her behavior is both very normal and yet just weird enough that it's unsettling, but also not so weird that you can say, she's this or she's that she's just sort of unstable you know and it's done through this it's done through these narrative things that i think were really smart and that got worse and worse as the book went on i think so much of this book is told in the little tiny asides of dialogue the little one sentence dialogue hither and yon i wrote this down a couple times like so early on eleanor and theo meet and they're just kind of vamping they do a lot of this sort of just vamping on ideas the characters do and it's sort of at theo's instigation but where they just kind of joke around so theo talks or uh you know who are you and luke's like well i'm a bullfighter and so theo immediately seizes on that and says yes and i'm a princess from a faraway land and there's never any sort of hesitation described in the book and all the other characters kind of play along with this too um so later on when they're kind of not sure what else to talk about luke just looks at theo and says so tell me about your kingdom where you're from as a princess and she immediately goes into this this gag about you know being told to marry this guy and he's got a a ring in his ear and she can't stand it so she runs off pretending to be a milkmaid you know uh but they'll they'll do these kind of gags and early on they're kind of vamping on how they know a lot of similar people with like aunts and uncles and it's unclear how much of it is eleanor just following along one thing we don't get a clear picture of is much about eleanor's actual life because she lies all the time right she pulls details from things she's seen earlier in the book and throws them at the other people because she just can't i mean i don't know why that that why is sort of what the part of the book is about but it feels to me like it's because she can't actually bear to look straight at what her life is right now yeah um and so the theo jokes about how oh we're cousins so now that we found out we're cousins we can't be separated well later on in the in the book um eleanor's gotten mad at theo and theo has to come and, and borrow some of eleanor's clothes because theo's clothes have gotten covered in in blood uh in in <laughs> yeah, cla- yeah blood. Class, classic uh, blood problem catholic blood you know happens to all of us uh, and theo makes a line about how oh now we're in the same clothes we'll be twins and eleanor says cousins and it's just one line no no one remarks on it but it's so good because the first time when theo talks about eleanor and her being cousins it's a way of bringing them together right of identifying closeness and then later on when theo says we're twins eleanor pulls it back out so we're not twins we're cousins we're further away than we you wanted to make us just now um even though i'm just referencing something we earlier talked about and it's all these little tiny lines of dialogue like that that make this book i think so much so smart and so strategically chosen in so many careful places um that i could talk about it for a really long time like well, all of my notes are just like every <laughs> every page i wrote down a sentence like this is a great sentence and here's why but that that would be kind of boring I'm not no i i mean time. i think at some point 
some point I might ask you what your favorite sentences are. Um, I think that'd, that'd, that'd be interesting. Or some of the ones you liked best. But I, I do want to pick up on this idea that like they're vamping and they're joking. I thought was really interesting because so actually my first thought was honestly when I read the book is it's the one part of the book that felt most dated to me. You know what I mean? As far as like how they joke and how the characters interact because it just felt like this sort of socialization that was totally outside my own time. Does that make sense? Like not yeah. only just like what they joked about, but like the rapidity of wit. Like it, honestly, the, the best reference is it felt very much like someone was doing, you know, a better version of some Hollywood stuff I saw from the fifties, which makes sense. Cause it's the same period, you know, but it was a very yeah, it's like, like, it's like Noel Coward dialogue. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. So, which is, which was great because I think, you know, she's writing about, she's trying to write about people and, who like who would have a an honest reaction to the situation and of course one of the honest reactions would be very silly right if you're going to stay in a haunted house for two weeks you'd be really goofy the whole time of course right like yeah. well, how could you not be um but so after but besides the dated part though i think you've hit on exactly where like there's this constant play that like their situation puts them in which is very like familiar and Eleanor keeps mistaking it for intimate, right? And so yeah. you've picked up on exactly how Shirley Jackson tells the reader that this is happening. But um, because these characters are so witty and they vamp so much, there's sort of this like all is one mentality that Eleanor keeps saying is, okay, this like, it's the big, because the big breaking point, right, is when um, she basically tell, tells Theodora, hey, I'm I'm going to come back with you. You know, I decided like, hey, this, this shouldn't end. I love it with you. Hill House is great. Like, I'm going to follow you back. And Theo tries to distance herself to the usual play, which doesn't work. And then later, you know, not too long later, they not only have a creepy experience in the garden, but of course, you know, Eleanor's taken possession of by the house <laughs> once she yeah. has that final rejection. And so I, I just I just thought the continual ways in which Eleanor is longing for intimacy and offered it in these superficial ways. And then, the, of course, it crumbles honestly like i like that's a very relatable thing it's like every kid at summer camp right or it's honestly like mm -hmm. even even now as an adult there are these weird ways or maybe as a young adult still as a better pride because you know it's basically she's 32 um so she's 34 but she's 32 but she acts like a young adult you know and i think there's yeah. a really excellent picture of how a young adult feels in those kind of social situations because you're just so desperate for something permanent that everything illusory becomes you know overused does that make sense yeah i think that's exactly right uh, eleanor has really no idea how to how to do this um but she can kind of fake it enough that the others i think don't quite realize how odd she is until it's kind of too late right um, yeah so i uh, what are some of your favorite sentences i guess is actually what i wanted to ask next because because i'm curious what you pick you, you you sort of uh centered on oh so i'm i'm very i'm very boring because i I mean, I loved a lot of the book, but I can't get past the opening, to be honest. Um, yeah. No live, <laughs> no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> that is like one of the ballsiest openings ever. And um, I just, I yeah, that one really, if I, if I remember one in, in two years, it'll probably be that one, to be honest. Like the other stuff that I, I was trying to look through what I had written down. Um, I don't have a lot of sentence for sentences written down, but, um, cause most of what caught me, to be honest, like I loved how her sentences were, but I, I loved the descent into like semi madness that Eleanor would go through, you know? So like, um, I'm learning the pathways of the heart, Eleanor thought, you know, but like, of course she's not. And this is like a cliche that's being used to overdetermine, you know, um, a, 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 a very 
quick friendship. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Like, she keeps using these very weird cliches to kind of examine how Eleanor is just relying on, like, you know, magazine knowledge to talk about real friendships, <laughs> which I, I loved that stuff the most, probably. Yeah, I think that's, you know, she, she talks about, early on, she talks about us, the road she's traveling on for, like, not really very long, like 100 miles, I think, from oh, wherever she yeah. lives to the town. The road is her intimate friend. She's done it for just a little bit. You know, she she immediately sort of latches on to people in this way. Um, I, I think the, the one of the fun tensions in the book is between Eleanor wanting to be part of something and wanting to also be her own person making her own decisions, right? Um, and so yeah. one of the sentences I, I hinged on is one of the first moments when she really feels like she's her own person. And it's, uh, I guess the whole sentence, it's one of the, it's one of the longer sentences with lots of little clauses, which she doesn't do too much of in this book, but she does it a few times. So it's, uh, I think it's like, I don't think anything has even actually happened yet. Yeah. They, they got scared by maybe a rabbit in the, in the grass, but that's the only thing. And so it opens it's on page 60. Eleanor found herself unexpectedly admiring her own feet. Theodora dreamed over the fire just beyond the tips of her toes, and Eleanor thought with deep satisfaction that her feet were handsome in their red sandals. Mm. What a complete and separate thing I am, she thought, going from my red toes to the top of my head, individually an I, possessed of attributes belonging only to me. Um, and the rest of it's really good too, but just that sentence is just, it tells you so much about who this person is and how she's thinking about, I don't know, I just, I fell in love with sentences like that, reading the whole book. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think it's just so well-written line to line that it, at some point it just becomes, you know, the, the atmosphere you're moving through <laughs> to get to the story. Um, but I also think, you, for some reason you reminded me when, with the aside about the rabbit that, like, uh, we talked about hor- horrifying moments earlier. I got to tell you, so after Eleanor is potentially possessed by the house and, um, or I can't remember actually, maybe it's not then. No, it is. When she sees the footsteps, do you remember? The footsteps that are yeah. behind her. And so she just has these footsteps that are like walking through the grass and like Shirley Jackson's very clear. Again, it's an Eleanor's perspective, but it seems to like try and, it seems like Shirley Jackson's trying to give you a lot of emphasis on the, on the fact that like there are actual footsteps making imprints on the ground. And then they walk across the water and they make little ripples in the water because they keep, go- they keep, I don't know, I thought that was so incredible for some reason. It's the same trick basically as the, as her holding Theo's hand. She thinks someone's behind her and it's not Luke and Theo, it's a ghost. But it was just, I don't know, I found the imagery, like I found a lot of horror in the imagery of being in a field and just seeing footsteps surround you. You know, that's, I think that's an yeah. amazing idea to kind of grapple with. Um but so I, I did want to, if you're okay with this, I wanted to zoom out maybe just for a hot second because I was curious about, so you loved this book. I love this book too. Um, I'm, but I'm curious maybe like with your general experience with Shirley Jackson and I don't know, like, like I don't know, like if what your background is with her and also um, just, yeah, let me, let me start there actually. So my background with Shirley Jackson as a whole is not much. Um, I've read the lottery, of course, at some point in high school, like everyone else for the last 30 years. Um, but I've also... I think other than this, uh, the lottery and one other short story, which is in the Vandermeer weird fiction collection that I've been yeah. reading through. I actually don't think I've read anything else. I haven't read. We've always lived in the castle, which is on my short list to get to shortly. And I haven't read anything else. Uh, the short story in that collection is called the summer people and it's really good. So, <laughs> well, and so, and I was just curious. Yeah. I mean, I knew we, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I was curious partly because I do feel like, um, part of this, you know, reassessment of Shirley Jackson, I mean, she's, like you said, she's been big for a long time. Like, there was a big biography back in maybe the 80s. Um, but there was a new one that was, like, in 2016 
by Ruth Franklin um, that I think was part of the kind of reassessment of Shirley Jackson because Ruth Franklin wrote this biography. The biography's subtitle is called A Haunted Life. And so it's all about this idea that, you know, it's this kind of classic thing that's happened to Shirley Jackson throughout her her posthumous legacy is that, um, uh, her posthumous whatever, um, that she's kind of seen as this, like, uh, you know, as her personal life is so integral to her fiction in a way that it's, like, deeply psychological, right? Um, yeah. That people just kind of always, they can't help but compare the fact that, like, Shirley Jackson's writing about women who are lonely and anxious and wanting to escape and overburdened. Um, and, of course, she was a mother of four. She was, at the very least, verbally abused by her husband, who was, like, this great literary critic, and, um, you know, he, like she made the most money, but he would just give her an allowance from the bank account, you know, like kind yeah. of cl- classic asshole patriarchy stuff that was, but that was bad even for the time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, and so anyway, so like she's this mother of four, they had these rollicking huge social parties, even though she's an agoraphobe. And so there's all those ways in which she's, you know, totally overburdened and wants escape but also loves her husband who she wants to escape from. And so it's so easy to read that into the book, um, which I think is totally fine, by the way. But I, I, I think what's, what's, what hasn't been talked about as much as I was, I had this question I wanted to ask you because, so she, you know, abused alcohol and like a lot of people in the forties and fifties, she was taking, you know, drugs that were not great for you, that were thought to be harmless, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, I basically like, like there's parts of this book that I think skip and they, they, there's a weird way in which it's based on Eleanor's, you know, misunderstanding of relationships. Like she's suddenly wondering if like she and Luke have something together, but like when have her and Luke even talked, you know what I mean? Like there's a weird skip. And again, I think it's mostly attributable to, to, um, to Eleanor's naivete, but like the skips also include maybe some of the, the phenomenon in the house, like when Eleanor blacks out. And so I wondered to, I wondered if this is a plausible theory, how much of this is a drug book to you? Does this pass as like, like almost like how the 1930s hardball detective series, like if you read those books now, all those guys were alcoholics. And so a lot of yeah. their, a lot of their, like their characters, they go through these associative leaps and they like, there's like, there's this weird jumpiness that seems totally related to the writers being drunk all the time. <laughs> and actually it was the first time for me that I, some of the stuff in this book, the way that it expands consciousness, um, the way that Eleanor leaps from this to that and sees things. I, I mean, it felt very drug related to me, to be honest. I, I didn't. Yeah. I, I didn't know if you thought that was a plausible, <laughs> a plausible stance or not. The short answer is I hadn't thought of that before. And I didn't know. I don't know a ton about Shirley Jackson's life. Uh, I know some of the highlights, but I, I guess I hadn't heard of or hadn't noticed some of the drug stuff you're mentioning. I think that makes sense, at least. I mean, you're right. There's a lot of weird this actually, I can transition to something I wanted to ask you about. There's a there's a lot of ways the conversations don't quite fit together, even when they're not vamping, um, as if they're all kind of talking slightly past each other, or at least not quite, like a little bit off. Um, and you're right, the sort of con- there is sort of a consciousness expanding bit, particularly towards the end when she feels like she's feeling the house, and she's like leaning against, she's listening, and it's it's very great. It's unclear whether Eleanor is actually physically listening behind these doors, yes. or whether like Eleanor's consciousness of the house is allowing her to listen behind these doors. Right. But she towards the end of the book, she listens in on three conversations where they talk about everyone in the house and yet never mention Eleanor, um, as though she's kind of been excised from their memories. Not officially. It's not, not like they're ever like this is everyone in the house. But somebody will say, "What do you think about the people in the house?" And the person will list everyone other than Eleanor, and talk about them. Right. Uh, and there's a way in which. 
it talks about her like leaning up against the wall with her mouth open listening to it so i I could see some sort of drug connections here i hadn't thought of it but that would be worth exploring i think yeah well again i don't want to i mean i think you know reading biography into fiction is 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 a classic like fallacy also by the way not that big of a deal it's been I think it's been dis- disregarded maybe almost too strongly, but I do, I just think it's, it's funny because Shirley Jackson is, is become such a, an outsized figure. Um, like she, one of her first, you know, like a uh, little biography blurbs mentioned that she's an amateur witch. <laughs> yeah. I read that. Today, yeah. <laughs> well, and her and her husband. So apparently they, they had like over a hundred thousand books in their house and they had a lot on spiritualism and witchcraft. And I think this is in the Ruth Franklin biography which I haven't read. I've just read some reviews of, but um, it, it talks about basically that like um, she took real solace the later, you know, the, the later she got in life and she died young. She died at 48. Um, but the later she got in life, you know, she took solace in these things, um, especially the books that were written by like church men and the books were written about these like powerful witchy women. And so in some ways, like, cause there's this underline, I think to, to witch stuff right now for the last, I don't know, 20 years, maybe longer where like, witchiness has become sort of um recovered by feminists you know what i mean like like, yeah. these, like powerful women and it feels and that's definitely the the vein of ruth franklin's biography is that you know that shirley jackson was never serious about witchcraft she but she did think of it as a as a great way to talk about these interesting women's lives who you know were of course cut off by men which is not dissimilar <laughs> to shirley jackson's own life um so I don't know, but, but, but no one talks about the fact that like, yeah, she was on a lot of drugs in some ways and that she, you know, like everyone else in that era, you know, messed around with psychedelics. And I feel like, I don't know how you, how you read a book about a house talking to you and not think, Hmm, <laughs> not, not like if you know, someone's been on acid, you know what I mean? Like if I haven't been on acid, maybe it's something else, but like, <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. So you had a question you wanted to ask me, you said, I don't know. If yeah, we got so this to is that. just something I kind of was thinking about. Um, and this is partly cause I've been watching, we'll talk about the TV show later, maybe, but, um, a surprising amount of the TV show does not happen in the house. Um, and huh. it's, it's kind of an interesting choice, but what, you know, the book is, it's the house that is evil, right? It's the Hill house is not sane. It's a really, yeah. real emphasis on the physicality of the house rather than on whatever ghosts are haunting it. Right. Like I, I've just read um, about a month, not even a month ago, a couple weeks ago, I finally read the novel version of the woman in black. Um, a Susan Hill novel, which then went on to be that right. ludicrously successful uh, West End show. Great show. And then also a fairly forgettable Daniel Radcliffe movie. Um, uh, and I finally read the novel, not so much because it was that important, just because I love the play so much. And uh, it's, a, it's a decent little ghost story. It's not, you know, the play is much better with that extra metafiction layer it adds where they're retelling the story. Um, but, you know, the house in The Woman in Black is haunted, but it's by a particular person. It's haunted by Janet Humphrey like that is why the house is scary is because Janet Humphrey had this horrible thing happen to her and is now sort of staying in the house in the surrounding town um but Hill House it's not that direct right like we know the dad who built the house was a creepy weird dude who illustrated books about the seven deadly sins to his daughters (laughs) and that all of his wives died horribly but it's not you can't really hook any of the things that happen in the story onto it right Mm -hmm. like and the woman in black, our hero, hears a pony in trap all the time. Hears, hears the sound of a pony in trap drowning a lot because that happened. Because she's, you know, the ghost is reliving that moment. Right. There's nothing like that in the book you can hang on to. And Dr. Montague talks in The Haunting of Hill House about how the house is built on angles that aren't quite right. So the whole time you're in it, you're disoriented because things aren't level. And 
the walls are not joined like at 90 degree angles. Right. They're so like, yeah, a little so you, bit off. You, you think you're turning a corner at a 90 degree angle, but you're actually like, you're bending back around more than you thought you were, which I, I, yeah. I love that description because it, it made, yeah, it made the house have an embodied uncanniness. And so you're just never sure where you are. Like a couple of times people look out a window and say, wait, why can't I see this room? And Dr. Montague says, cause you're not where you think you are at all. Like it's, it's <laughs> right. Um, and there's a way in which the conversations in this book are like, like, again, the, the dialogue is often just not quite square, right? Like, yes. Um, at one point, so, so Eleanor has lied to Theo about having an apartment, right? And so they're in the house, uh, in the kitchen of, of the house, which is a weird kitchen with way too many doors. Um, and Theo says, well, what about, you know, what about your, you know, what about your kitchen? And Eleanor talks about her kitchen at her mom's house. And then Theo says, but what about your kitchen in your apartment? And Eleanor just says, I don't know how to make a souffle. <laughs> um, which is not irrelevant to what they were talking about because they had been talking about making a souffle about whether or not the housekeeper of Hill House was making a souffle right. but she never actually says anything about because she doesn't have an apartment as it turns out she crashes in her sister's like baby room um, but Theo doesn't say right but what about your apartment like she doesn't it, it's just like yep that was an acceptable thing to say you know they never actually they never quite queue up on a lot of these conversations and it just leaves it subtly disorienting. And I think it's, there's a way in which all of the sort of dialogue of the, of the book kind of feels like the architecture of the house, I guess, in that parts of it make sense, but parts of it feel like they have hidden meaning and other parts of it don't, they just don't quite queue up. Well, and I this don't know is, if that's a question so much as just a, that's a thing I thought about. What do you think? <laughs> no, no, I think that's, I think it's exactly, I think you're talking, you're speaking exactly to what I was even maybe hinting at earlier where I, I, I think part of that vamping style it, it feels like maybe of an era that wouldn't feel quite as alien if I was someone in the fifties or whatever. Um, and yet I think what I would add is that I would add something else to what you're saying, which is like, um, I think it's the one place where I, I actually thought there was a weakness because this is the problem with her being both omniscient, but also very close to Eleanor is that a lot of times these conversations, they're recorded as if it's just like, here's the repertorial thing that's happening and yet it, it feels like it would make more sense if it was more from Eleanor's perspective, right? That like we're supposed to be disoriented because honestly socializing is disorienting. It's like a puzzle that Eleanor can't figure out, right? It's something that she doesn't know how to put together or how to fit into or how to like, like everyone else has a script that she doesn't have the, she doesn't have the lines for, you know what I mean? Like that's how she talks about it. And, um, and I, I don't think it's a weakness per se, except that like, um, it's disorienting to the reader, but in a book that is all about sort of like these relationships and information, I mean, you want it to be like always purposeful disorientation as opposed to sometimes I did think, especially on the first read through, I did think I was like, they're just talking about nothing. And it's not, it doesn't feel like it has a reason other than it's a silly group of people who Eleanor doesn't understand. Does that make sense? Which is fine. It's just, I think one, once or twice it did happen too much for me, actually. Um, there are a couple moments, and like I think we actually spend a little too much time with Mrs. Montague. Like I get it, and I get yep, why she's there. I agree, but there's moments where I'm like, I get it. She's ridiculous. Can we move on? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, I totally. Mrs. Montague. Well, so I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you if you think Mrs. Montague showed up exactly the right moment, or like a little early, or a little late. I think it's probably the right moment, but I think it would have been corrected by um, by having her be a little a little less. Like she takes over the story in some ways for like a good chunk of the ending. Um, and yeah, she's not the if, most interesting character. And I, I can't, I don't, I didn't, wasn't able to do enough research and a little bit I did, didn't turn up an answer as to what else people were writing about haunted house novels in the fifties. But she feels like she's rebuking, like it feels like she exists as a deliberate way for Shirley Jackson to look at the reader and handle some objections a person might have. Like the first thing yeah. Mrs. Montague does is show up and say, 
John, you know, Dr. Montague, I can't believe you haven't done any of these things you should obviously do. And I wonder if she isn't sort of standing in as sort of somebody who read haunted house novels in the 50s right. might have said, I don't understand. Why haven't you done any of the obvious things you should do? Yeah. And I, I can't prove that. I, I, I don't I was trying to see if I could see if anybody else had said anything like that. So that may be just Bill making stuff up. But it felt like particularly on my second read through, like she was a deliberate way to sort of respond to the sort of obvious criticisms, because there is a way in which the book isn't very much like in, in, in one sense this is like the quintessential haunted house novel and in other ways it's very different because the planchette and stuff is not a big part like they, there is no ouija board they don't do this kind of stuff except when the the goofball does it and right. it doesn't tend to produce a lot of results like we get a little bit out of the planchette but the woman who did it also doesn't understand it she's like i don't well, really understand why they kept saying eleanor nelly nell nell <laughs> like, well and like and like you said i mean i think what's so smart is that like it's the haunting of hell house and so i think there is this way where the emphasis you know, the hunting of Hill House is a great is a great, you know, uh, basically ambivalent sentence as well, because. Right. So I think on one hand, of course, it means like the haunting of Hill House. Hill House is haunted. Also, it's haunting someone. Right. So it's, of course, doing both things. It's both. But 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 yeah. also the, the part of the first the first way you could take that that the Hill House is haunted by something. What I love is by, by the end of the book. We're not sure, of course, what's happening that's paranormal and, and what's not. Like, we're pretty sure there's definitely paranormal stuff happening. We just don't know, like, like for example, when Theodora and Eleanor are both in the garden or wherever it is, and they both see something and Theo screams, we actually don't know what Theo sees, right? Because yeah. Eleanor sees, like, this happy picnic in sunshine, um, which maybe would be terrifying because it's, like, night, basically, and those are clearly ghosts, but it's not exactly like your classic horror movie where it's like, hey, we're watching a beheading or like this ghost child staring at me with blood coming out of her eyes, right? It's like basically just a happy picnic scene, but Theo is screaming and saying, don't look back. And so we don't actually know what's happening. It's just like something is definitely happening. Um, I think that's the only thing other than that. And this isn't, I got this out of the introduction, but I think it's correct. By Laura Miller is the introduction I have. But I think it's right that the only two things that are supernatural that happen that Eleanor doesn't see is whatever Theo sees over her shoulder and then the dog that lures um, oh, yeah, Dr. The, Montague yeah. and Luke out at one point. But as 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 the introduction says, that's just a decoy. Like, I think we can kind of, you know, mo- most of the horrible stuff Eleanor is a direct witness to. Right. Um, well, and so, and, and that's... that feels, again, relevant. Well, and that's also why, so my, my final point is that, and so in a weird way that, like, by the end of the book, the only thing we know for sure that's haunting the house is Eleanor. Like, she literally yeah. is the ghost in Chapter 9, right? So she knocks on people's doors. She, like, speaks to yeah. Mrs. Montague through the door. Mrs. Montague says, who is it? You know, who's there? <laughs> Friendly spirit or whatever. She, like, wakes up Arthur, Mrs. Montague's oaf of a friend. Um, and everyone, you know, she wakes up everyone. She does the knocking on her own. And she literally becomes the ghost um in the sense of like what a ghost was doing to them and i thought that was again just really smart as far as you know the haunting of hill house is is the people are haunting it the house is haunting back and it's just sort of this beautiful you know collision of i don't know yeah different things but i i the last part i want to get to too is you talked about the so that if the house is haunting the people who live there basically that's like a really strange commentary on the phenomenon of embodiment right so like I feel like the idea like this the idea that we have like this like you know the the, the you know uh, the Cartesian duality or whatever you want to like talk about as far as like the mind body relationship and how well that it is and how maybe sometimes it's uncanny right um, 
and I just think there's a weird commentary in the fact that like so beyond the because I want to get to the domestic horror as well but like the fact that like the horror is in the design of the house right because not like other houses yeah. it's like you said it's it's built in a way that's evil and that's such a different weird idea that for me like everyone talks about how like psychological this book is but if you have literal ghosts and they're in the literal woodwork that turns into like a spiritual conversation doesn't it because that's that's a different plane of existence that is literally welded with ours that it's also reflecting possibly our own resistant our own existence which itself is like an uncanny welding of mind spirit and matter potentially right like i thought that was i thought it was really bizarre and beautiful the way that that embodiment is just so important for the whole story does that is that track or yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It is... I don't know if I have anything terribly clever to add to it. Yes, I think that's right. <laughs> awesome. Well, so the one, I want to ask you then about um, about this idea that... So uh, you said you don't know a lot about, about, about her life, but and without us you know, being too cheap in our armchair psychology, like this is like domestic horror in the sense of a house is literally preying on a young woman, right? There's something about... 50s feminism within that 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 seems clear right yeah no i i think well and also you know eleanor's was has never been alone with a guy having a conversation until she has that really unimportant conversation with luke and so she's felt very trapped in like they talk about a couple times about her her brother-in-law and her sister don't want her to to take the car and drive up there because it might be unsuitable for an unmarried young woman to you know, see by herself. She's 32. She's a grown woman. Uh, But there's a way in which she's trapped because she's kind of a single woman. And the way in which her, her commitment to her mother, her, her responsibility to take care of her horrible mother. um, And we don't actually hear a lot about why her mother was horrible, but uh, I think Eleanor's maybe the first time we see Eleanor. It's at least really early. Yeah. This is the second. Here's what we get about Eleanor. We've, we've never heard of her before at this point. This is page three. Eleanor Vance was 32 years old when she came to Hill House. The only person in the world she genuinely hated, now that her mother was dead, was her sister. <laughs> that's that's the first thing we hear about her. Like, this this trapped relationship with her mother, uh, which is, we don't get a lot of detail on, but is clearly very unhealthy and yeah. very bad and has stifled her up, and it's why this thing happens the way it is. You know, that's a domestic horror thing, right? Like, my responsibilities because I'm the younger sister have ruined my life. That's a very... Oh, you know, totally. I was unable to go be a free person, didn't have a room of my own, right? Like, that's... <laughs> well, and it's fine. So, and that's definitely the, the part that every biography has really hammered home, is that Jackson had a really fraught relationship with her mom. Um, there's this New Yorker uh, review of uh, Ruth Franklin's biography where it calls... So, Geraldine is Shirley Jackson's mom. This is, it says, Geraldine's quotations are a source of guilty entertainment because they're so horrible. So, like... um. Shirley Jackson gets into the New York Times, you know, big, like a, you know, it's a big deal. She's famous. <laughs> she has a picture. And her mother writes her, I think, I have been so sad all morning about what you've allowed yourself to look like. <laughs> Which is, I mean, like, <laughs> like she says, she, t- she told Jackson at one point that she was the product of a failed abortion and harangued her constantly about her bad hair, her weight, and her willful refusal to cultivate feminine charm. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's like, I don't know, how could that not be all over your fiction? You know what I mean? Like, if your mom yeah. said even one of those things to you, it's like, well, I guess I have nothing else to write about. That's it. That's what I'm yeah. going to write about. This feels like a rich vein here. Yeah. But I also, I guess, Jeez. I mean, I, I don't think I have the words to maybe say what I'm trying to say about the embodiment stuff, because um part of it what i like though is like it is it, related to the idea of the house as a real house right and so I, I think what's dangerous with these kind of books that are so clearly 
mired in symbolism or in things that can be taken for symbolism. But like the truth is, is that, I mean, people's houses define so much of how they experience life. Like that's a basic, you know, I think fact that we don't talk about a lot and it gets talked about in some ways, but I feel like there's a, a study, a, a kind of a cultural studies angle out there, which is very probably Marxist in origin that is about materialism and the way that like, you know, our, our literal constructions determine kind of our social patterns, you know, like roads determine how fast you drive, not the law, right? Sort of that idea yeah. of like our habits are formed at a very basic physical level. And of course, I love this idea of like a house being a horror because I, I think, I mean, I don't know, like I, I think in, in my own life, like I can think through like the stages of my, of my mom's house and like my parents' divorce or like these ways in which, you know, the house evolved and literally how it was used. Like the basement used to be this like scary space until my brother revamped it into a movie room. And all of a sudden there was this bright space somehow, you know, and it changed how we played as children, which is a crazy thing to say, of course, right? Um but it's the most basic in some ways, especially American experience, where so much is a so much is about your home, right? Like, um, like the homes my dad lived in, like apartment, trailer park, you know, like the various homes you live in have so much of a, I don't know, a factor in your own weird habits. And I like that because it's it's a really it's a, it's still partly symbolic, but it's also like a really lived experience discussion. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, as a, as a quick aside, so you know, I left, uh, you know, I left the, the Denver when I was seventeen, right? And uh, I put on a couple inches after, you know, I, I got a little taller after I left <laughs> right, college. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really spend a lot of time at home in the, in the place I grew up after I left for college. Like I spent like one or two summers, and that's really it, other than the occasional, you know, you know, and uh, my. Uh, goodness my now ex-wife was allergic to cats so we didn't spend a lot of time in the house and so right. on and uh it meant that i don't come home very much and when i do everything is so much smaller <laughs> than i remember it being You're like you bumped your head basically <laughs> i mean almost like i am because i'm the tallest thing in that house ever i was taller than any of my family members and you know when i left i, I was literally smaller not only for most of my life growing up as a kid but even just the last time i lived there for any substantial period of time um and it's just the weird, it's the most disorienting thing because everything is, is just literally smaller than I remember it being. Yeah, no, I, And, yeah. you know, it's happened to be the last four times I've gone home. And so anyway, this, that's partly just a funny story, but it also it connects to this notion of, of how much of the way we view the world is, is connected to this house we're living in. Because, I don't know, I, I can feel my own social relationships and contexts and, and connections to that house and that whole life feel different because my physicality and real physical relationship with the place is different you know like <laughs> oh very much so no no i i to yeah i mean i totally agree i mean it's why i that's why i think she gets i mean like she gets to these weird horrors of like you know Eleanor, eleanor is essentially a poor woman you know yeah shacking up with her you know her sister and her sister's extra baby room or whatever and that's i don't know of course that determines how, how you how you think of the world and how you think of relationships when intimacy is like you're forced into you know like if you're like if you grew up living you know sitting on one bed with two siblings do you know what I mean like that of course is this formative way of being in the world that she weirdly gets at from like the opposite end that the house imposes itself on the person is part of life that she i think oddly you know yeah makes explicit um which yeah, so this is a good book, basically. I think is what we're saying. It's a pretty good book. Yeah. Um, right, so so I, I'm going to talk about the TV show for a little bit now, if that's all right with you. Yeah. Because I think we have to. Does that I, sound good to you? That sounds good. 
All right, so there's going to be spoilers here. I'm not going to go into spoiling every single thing, but we got to talk about the last couple of minutes of the TV show. And so uh, I'll, ma- I'll mark down in the in the show notes like where the spoilers are. But, you know, spoiler warning for the TV <laughs> show The Haunting of Hill House, which came out a week and a half ago. So yeah. I think we should actually tag a spoiler warning on it. Um, okay, so mostly the TV show has nothing to do with the book, and that's fine. Uh, I- I'm always kind of perplexed when people do this, when they claim they're adapting a novel and they're really just telling an entirely different story but sort of borrowing some of the names. The only reason I think people must do it is because it must be, it sells tickets. Like it I'm must sure, be that yeah. it's hard to sell an original idea, but you can pretend that it's connected to something else. And to be clear, I'm not sure I would have watched whatever this was if it wasn't connected to The Haunting of Hill House. Well, I'm not sure I would have watched it at all, except that I was recording a podcast on it. So I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, other than some names, like there is a Nellie Vance, there's a Luke, there's a Theo. The Theo in the story is is gay, and there's at least a pretty reasonable read of Theo in this book as being gay. Yeah. Uh, it never... It, there, the book... Jackson is very coy about the gender of the person that Theo was living with in some kind of weird relationship. So, you know, there is at least a very reasonable reading of this book that Theo is gay, right? Um, and, like, there's a house called Hill House, and it's haunted. But other than that, you know, there are, there are visible apparitions of ghosts... They are following people out and around, and it's the Crane family. Everyone's a sibling. Like, so Nellie, Luke, Theo, and there's two older siblings, one named Shirley, who are all related. (laughs) And they, as kids, their family moved in to try to flip the house, and then horrible things happened, and they left the house and are now sort of dealing with the ramifications of it 20-something years later. Um, When it works, it's good. It's somebody bolted a gothic horror novel onto a TV show season of Parenthood, or This Is Us, uh, and that works, right? Like, it's pretty melodramatic, but it's okay. But we have to talk about the ending, because this is what I don't like about this kind of adaptation project, is at the end of the thing, they feel like they need to mirror the structure of the book, which, of course, opens with that paragraph, like two sentences, and then that paragraph about Hill House not being sane, whatever walked there, walked alone. And the TV show opens with it. They say that one of the characters who is a writer has written a story called The Haunting of Hill House about what happened to him when he was a kid, and they, they crib from Jackson's book whenever they need to get a paragraph or two out of it. There's a whole political thing about making this book, which is a lot about the female experience, the writings of a male hack writer. Yeah, I was just going to say, but I'm just going to yeah, annoying. <laughs> let somebody else do that. But it should be talked about, because uh, <laughs> that's not great, maybe. Um, again, because also, they explicitly, this guy's novels are supposed to be hack pulp, which, of course, is not what this book is. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, they get to the end of it, and they've done, they've realized, and I'm, I'm going to spoil the heck out of the ending here, but they realize that the house kind of keeps people who die in it, right? And so they kind of stay and they haunt there and they have some semblance of agency, which is, the book maybe kind of implies that Eleanor's living in Hill House afterwards, but only in the loosest possible terms, right? Right. And the it comes out that one of the characters made a decision not to destroy the house because some of the people who died there have family members who want to go see the ghosts at the house, right? And it's kind of horrifying, but it and it sort of works, I guess. But, one of the characters, some things happen, some other people die there. There's kind of a semi-sweet sort of family reunion of ghosts in the house. It's pretty schmaltzy <laughs> and not very good. And a character sort of continues the decision to not burn down the house, even though it's horrible and occasionally reaches out and eats people because there's this kind of family connection to the house. And it's dumb, but whatever. But then, Joel, they do this thing, okay? They start doing the paragraph again, and I'm like, how are they going to do this? And Joel, this is how the book it ends with. Let me, let, me, let me make sure I do it as close to correctly as I possible, as possibly can. It ends with, you know, Hill House not sane, stood against its hills, within its walls, continued upright, etc. And then, silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and those who walk there, walk together. Major chord. 
Joel, I had a physical reaction. <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and I was the most disgusting thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> like, okay, fine, you're doing this weird other story. And you're just doing the ending of the first season of American Horror Story for some reason, even though that was really universally reviled and was not good. We're deciding to do that to end our otherwise pretty good TV show. But also, you just did this horrible thing to one of the greatest, like, bookends paragraphs I've ever read. Like, what is what kind of monster does something like that? <laughs> well, it's true. So also, because I think, you, especially because we talked about, like, this weird descent of Eleanor's is a descent clearly of of madness or haunting or something bad and yet she of course is happy she feels, she feels like she belongs but I, I the house is evil though right that the, that's the ending sentiment and so i because i think the the final read on eleanor's thing is like if she dies and stays there it's it's not like she stays there and gets to like have a happy love fest with whatever was possessing her she just becomes the next thing that's haunting Hill House at best, right? And so yeah. I, I think, because I think that's the tragedy of it, is that even though she's happy, it is supposed to be a tragic ending, <laughs> which this book would seem to say, no, 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 Eleanor dying there, what, or this movie or show, whatever it is, um, from what you've said, sounds like, no, she finds her ghost love and is happy, <laughs> which I think is totally wrong, because I think the story is essentially a, the tragedy of Eleanor, right? Um, also, 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 I'm okay with people remixing and sampling and stuff. And if you want to like invert Shirley Jackson and make this, it's a clever idea in some ways to be like, Hey, is there a weird way in which like there's a togetherness that happens essentially in every ghost story, which is that you make contact with those you loved. Okay, cool. That's, that's not dumb, but what, like, why quote her? Why quote her? Why not just have that be the meaning of the ending instead of cribbing her line and then ruining her line? I think that's that's yeah, that seems to be the the worst way to to honor her or to actually change her up. Do you know what I mean? Like, because it both it yeah. makes her too explicit and it also kind of drags her through your muddy bullshit or bullcrap. Sorry. Uh. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's like, okay, so we, we couldn't get our story, the haunting of this house in the hills made. And so we decided to borrow it from Shirley Jackson. Fine. I get the realities of the industry. Maybe they already had the license to it. Whatever. Right. right. Also, you can't, I don't think you're going to make a good TV show or a movie out of this book. This book is so literary. Like, yeah. I don't know how you'd do it. Um, fine. And like the, again, the ending's happening. I know what they're doing. Like, oh, we're doing the murder house. Because that's how the first season of American Horror Story ends. It's like they have a happy ghost life in the haunted house. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Spoiler that's... alert for a terrible TV show. <laughs> um, sorry, I guess I should have tagged that too. Nah. Uh, but I'm like, okay, so for some reason we're rehashing this Ryan Murphy show for our like attempted prestige ghost story. Like, I get it. I don't like it. Whatever. But then like, like borrowing the actual words from it, yeah. it just feels very disrespectful in a way that I don't I don't get that attached to this kind of thing anymore. Like, I used to, as a kid, get really worked up about adaptations that changed things. But it just felt really gross in a way that I, I'm having a hard time putting my finger on. But I think it's it's because it kind of puts her stamp on this as though she, this was her story. And it's just not. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, that's but... a good way to say it. <laughs> well, no, because honestly, so, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I think... I actually don't mind getting worked up about adaptations still. Because I, I think that you can do one of two things. Um... You, you can, and, and sometimes sometimes this is, is the same thing, but you can basically use, you know, someone's good idea to make your own brand new thing, which is what they tried to do with the show, it sounds like. Um, and I, I'm, I'm mostly okay with that in general. Or you can make an adaptation that, like, uh, while it has to, you know, 
So if I'm doing a, if I'm doing you know let's say Lord of the Rings, of course it can't just be Lord of the Rings straight through as it is in the book because we're writing a movie and a movie is visual and if you're not treating the story visually and changing things to like fit the medium you're not doing a good adaptation but i honestly like i'm, I'm still the kind of person maybe it's because i also write if you're gonna do an adaptation like i don't know why the heck you wouldn't keep the spirit of the thing alive you can change stuff that's why i think the, the the fellowship of the ring is my favorite lord of the rings movie because as it goes on Peter Jackson gets happier and happier messing around with stuff. Like, I think I'll never... Okay, yeah, geek alert. <laughs> I'll never rewatch um, the third extended edition, you know, the third movie's extended edition, because they, they, they totally castrate the, the presence of Gandalf when he faces off with the Witch King. And I get why, yeah. I get why they do that, but that's such a betrayal of the source material that at some point you know what, don't, don't write Lord of the Rings. I don't know why you don't have, you can do a, a story about a wizard who slowly descends into weakness, which is not what they did, but like you can do your own story. I don't have any idea why you would, except for money, of course, which makes me not happy, even if I get it. But I, so I don't know. So I, I'm actually in the camp that thinks like, Hey, you ruined Prince Caspian. Yeah. And you really shouldn't have, <laughs> you know, you really shouldn't. I don't yeah. know. Like you had some good ideas, but your good ideas actually went so astray that you like, why not just write your own fantasy movie? I don't like stop wasting my time with these money grabs. Yeah, no. And I, I hear you. I guess what I'm trying to talk about is when I was like in 15, I would have watched the movie version of annihilation and gotten really mad. Oh right? yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah, now yeah. is 29. I'm like, okay, this really has nothing to do with the book, but I get why there's a connection at least. Right. right? Like yes. it, it, there is a sort of thematic connection, even though none of the things that happen in the book happen in the TV so, in the movie. And it changes a lot of stuff, but there's at least a, a sort of through line and I can get it but like and I was I was willing to do that with the TV show even as it's a completely right. different story because there's some good stuff in it too yeah. like one the couple of the ghosts are pretty good like they're pretty creepy they do some cool plot stuff with them they have nothing to do with the book because there aren't that kind of ghosts in the book <laughs> but it's still you know, the bent neck lady is legitimately upsetting I like her like it's a good bit and the actress playing Theo kills it, even though she's playing a different character. And they, they make the occasional reference to, like, the Cup of Stars, right. where Theo towards the end tells a story about breaking the greenhouse window, and it makes sense in the character, and I like it. But then, I don't know. I was willing to go with it until it did that last thing, and it was like, you could watch whatever, like, Rotten Tomatoes meter in my head drop, like, Just... 80 points, You know, <laughs> from, like, this is a pretty good thing that ends badly because I didn't know what to do to, this should be destroyed. Like, that was... <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I do... Th I, so anyway, so... that's... It's funny that Annihilation has come come up in this podcast, like not just this podcast, sorry, these podcasts so often yeah. because it's a book that I find deeply frustrating, um, but that actually is maybe, I mean, it's definitely a well-written book that I just disagree with what he's doing. His project, I think, is flawed at the level of technique, and I, I actually did think of it again for this novel because, so if Annihilation is all about like hyper-objects and these things that you witness which you cannot put into words, supposedly... Um, this novel, I think, has a similar, you know, idea in the sense that we're facing forces and paranormal, you know, extravagances and also our own psychological reactions to these, which make it hard to describe literally what we're confronting. What is the force of Hill House? We never know. We never know. We have no yeah. idea. But you know what he does? What, what she does describe? She describes uh, knocking and footsteps and anything else that you could legitimately put into words. And I think the biggest problem with Vandermeer's books, um, I actually tried to read the third one again. I finished the first two. I have not made it to the third one. I probably never will. It seems like. 
My biggest problem, though, was that he kept mixing up what could and couldn't be described. I mean, like, these people would face yeah. off with, like, you know, these mutilated mutant creatures who had human eyes. Dude, you can describe that. I just described that. You know what I mean? Like, that's, like, it's, <laughs> it may not capture what they saw, but then what you do is you have the characters try and describe it, describe it, describe it, describe it, and then face the futility of their descriptions. Whereas what he actually does is just have them be like, oh, something is there. So I write the Orby thing is there, you know, like it's just, it's so frustrating yeah. because when it was like, I was like, I was taken back into that frustration only because here's an example of how to face something that is kind of beyond experience and yet to capture what it would be like to be, to, to confront it. Do you know what I mean? Um, and yeah. I just love that. I love that she gets away with that because she does it so well. Cause right. There's no, we don't ever see a ghost except for maybe those, those picnic people. Um, we don't ever, you know, we don't ever have anything like dangerous happen except that a woman still dies, you know, and it's just this perfect combination of, of yeah, different phenomena. But when the the book explicit, I love, uh, about halfway through Dr. Montague explicitly says no ghost has ever hurt anybody. The only harm comes from the victim harming him or herself. Oh, totally. Like sure, poltergeist occasionally throw rocks through windows, but like, that's it. And there's a lot of moments when Jackson looks at the camera and says, this is what's happening. Like, this is the kind of story I'm telling. And that's what we're up. That's what we're up to. I'm not going to waste a lot of time doing other things. No, like there's never any, you know, so many haunted house stories or movies and stuff have a lot of like the characters being like, Oh my God, is the house haunted? But pretty much they're like, yep, something's weird about this house. I guess we're not sure exactly what it is, but this is a weird house. Like there there are, (laughs) well, and she does, I mean, (laughs) there's not a lot of question about it. I, you know, she does, she doesn't do anything that I think that is crazy original with him, but she does a good job with, Dr. Montague, who's supposed to be the voice of authority. So he he's the one that she often puts the words of like, like you're saying, kind of the, the fourth wall breaking. He's the one she uses most for like kind of the clear exposition or the clear in a book like this, where it's so often close or maybe ambiguously close to Eleanor's perspective. You've got to find ways to signal over Eleanor's narration or Eleanor's perspective, not narration, but Eleanor's point of view to the reader, right? You've got to find ways to tell the reader, here's this, which is definitely real, even though Eleanor's in the room, this is trustworthy. And that's mostly through character's dialogue, of course, right? Yeah. Um, and so Dr. Montague, like, he has a couple places. One of the ones I liked, which is, um, you know, Eleanor basically asks him, do you think we're right to stay here? And he says, yeah. um, I think we are all incredibly silly to stay. I think that an atmosphere like this one can find out the flaws and faults and weaknesses in all of us and break us apart in a matter of days. We have only one defense, and that is running away. At least it can't follow us, can it? And, you know, it goes on for a little bit. But, I, you know, that's that's as clear a signal to the reader as you can get. But once again, I just, you pointed out earlier, which is the most obvious thing, and yet it's the most beautiful thing. It's about the atmosphere, right? He doesn't accuse a ghost. He doesn't accuse, he just yeah. he accuses this environment of being the problem. And, of course, he's wrong because it does follow them. Um, I think we should talk about, um, Eleanor's death because this is how it ends. She's uh she she chooses it seems to drive at a tree, right? And then she mm-hmm. so she says I'm really doing it. I'm really doing this all. I'm doing this all by myself now. At last, this is me driving at the tree. I'm really really doing it by myself. And then it says in the unending crashing second before the car hurled into the tree, she thought clearly. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why don't they stop me? Um, and so, yeah, for me, I, 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 as I, I, we talked about, like, it's a combination of the house and her own 
psychoses. And yet, uh, I think there's no question that she wouldn't have killed herself without the influence of the house, even if it was partially her. Um, Is that how you read it? I think that's right. I think that she feels a certain, like, I can't leave, she says before that, right? Like, there is a sense of compulsion to stay. It's not just that she's happy and likes it. There is a sense of, like, no, I I surrendered to the house, right? She says, I'll come, you know, I'll come home. Uh, or she doesn't say I'll come home, but that's the line she's echoing, right? So, she, you know, she says again and again, I, I can't leave. It won't let me, like, they'll let me out there, but it doesn't play by their rules. There's at least a sense in which she's compul- compelled, but she's not entirely upset about it. <laughs> about the fact that she's compelled to stay. It's not like, oh my god, I'm trapped here. She never says anything like that. No, well, she so keep, I, I do think it's kind of a, a mixed uh, a mixed instinct at the end, and it's not until the very end where she's like, wait a minute, I'm going to kill myself to stay in this house, but yeah, well, it's too late. You, you are going to do that. Yeah, it's you too know? late. <laughs> well, and I, I love, so this is where I also, on the second read, you know, like, um, you know, Jackson's not doing your kind of, she does some classic foreshadowing, you know, the terrorists with the, the person who hung themselves, or the, the turret, sorry. Um, and other things, but like actually the, the tree crashing one, she does really, really early where she talks yeah. about, um, Luke and the doctor, uh, say they came around the bend driving up to Hill house and they were so startled that the doctor almost crashed into the tree. <laughs> and I, well, and the first, the first wife, Hugh Crane's first wife, her horse got spooked and crashed into the tree. Right. Too. Yeah. But so, but I just, and I, but I, I remembered the horse one, but I, I didn't remember that the doctor talked about like, mm. Oh, I got so spooked. I almost cried. I was like, man, she, you know, even with that level of sort of foreshadowing, it's just there. You know, just like you, you're aware of the, a tree being there. You know what I mean? Like, so even if you don't remember it, you like, I feel like your unconscious retains it. And you're like, yep, a tree is there. I remember that, you know, like the tree was always there in your imagination. Um, yeah. Which is simple, but really intelligent. Um, so, well, yeah. Just, just on a craft level, particularly that first, like I said, that first chapter or whatever, it's divided into like nine chapters, which are divided into subchapters. That first chapter just sets up all the chessboard so perfectly and elegantly that, I just, I think it should be taught. It's just so good. <laughs> no, when I, I also, I really, I mean, she can get away with this partly because she's such a good writer, but I, I also like that, you know, um, she just goes character by character, <laughs> right? Like she just yeah. jumps to it and gives you their background. Um, and I think that's smart because once you're into the story, you're not super interested in like, there's no flashbacks, right? No one's giving their life story and you don't want it, right? Yeah. You, she just gives you, it's almost, it's almost, we talked about the no coward, coward, uh, no coward dialogue. And um, there is a play-like element where she literally does like the opening chapter is definitely like a you know um, you know scene scene setting literal scene setting and then the characters are just build basically um, but it works and it works partly this is the thing I think I that she's so good at probably because it's her fifth book the book is named the haunting of Hill House you know and the it, the opening chapter is like hey this house is evil so she knows she has a hook. That she can kind of yeah. use to just say what things are, and t- but also the things are interesting, right? Theodore wants to only have one name. Eleanor has this crazy event happen in her past, right? Like the like Luke, which doesn't come up again. Luke's a petty thief <laughs> yeah. and a liar. So I mean, so she's smart about what she's saying, but she also just says the damn thing, which I think is the only way to go about it sometimes. But I think, you know, and you're right, by, by front-loading some of that, it also means that, you know, the first really spooky stuff doesn't happen until halfway through the book. Right. Like, and it's not a very long book, so it's not like a, you know, 500-page yeah. history, but things don't really get, you know, the last half of the book is where all the spooky stuff happens. I think they get spooked by a rabbit at one point, but that's it. Like, 
a rabbit that might or might not be an actual rabbit, right? But that's, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, this is where I'm, like, I'm reading a ghost story. For, for me, every time it's like, Theo's lying. There's a ghost out there. There's ghosts everywhere. We're going to die in this house. Why did we come here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, I, yeah, I was really, I tell you what, it was really, it was really a fun reread. I do want to touch on, um, maybe before we, I don't know, it seems like we're probably close to wrapping up. But, um, and so you mentioned you hadn't read We've Always Lived in the Castle. Um, yeah, not yet. Um, and I do, I wish one as a follow-up to this book, as far as like, I do think everyone should read that. I, I would never want to pit two like kind of masterpieces against each other, but if possible, I think that book remains higher in my mind because she does, she has a lot of the same stuff as far as the psychology of the characters with the importance of housekeeping. Um, but there's a weird way in which like she makes the book just as unnerving, not as scary, but just as unnerving without having nearly as much explicit, you know, ghost hauntings so forth. And I think that on that level, it's it's almost more impressive as a work of horror because it's so weirdly tied to these disturbed mentalities in a way that feels like an escalation of The Haunting of Hill House. Um, but yeah, man, I love that book. I just, but yeah, as a recommendation, these books are both super short and I feel like it, it's a great one-two, like, weekend read or a couple weekends in a row. Um, so... Yeah. So yeah. Do you so think else thing, you want to? One thing I've been yeah. reading. I have one thing I'm reading right now. I haven't finished this book, so I can't talk about it a lot, right? But I just kind of want to. I'm reading Beloved by Toni Morrison right now. Oh my gosh. And I'm, I'm, I haven't finished it, and I haven't read the whole book before, so I don't want to talk a lot about it. But just, I wanted to talk. We were talking about literary versus genre fiction earlier, right? Yeah. And there's a way in which I think. Again, I have not finished Beloved, so I don't know what's going to happen in it, right? But Beloved, I think, is very definitely literary fiction, right? <laughs> Whereas I think people would like to say The Haunting of Hill House is at least mostly genre fiction. Mm-hmm. And they're both stories about ghosts and houses and yeah, stuff. You know what I mean? Totally. Like I, I, And on the one hand, I think that is sort of an indication that people just like to draw arbitrary lines in the sand. But there's also a sense in which, like, I'm 100 pages into Beloved and we've seen some ghostly stuff. Like, the house shook at one point. And they talk about how a lot about how other people are creeped out about things. But the book is never a horror book at all. Right. At least not yet. Again, I've not finished the thing. But in the first hundred pages, it doesn't ever do anything which is trying to scare you. Like, when the house shakes, it's to contrast it with Paul D. sort of breaking a few things to make the ghost calm down. Right? Like, it's not... It's it's a point about sort of the way different people handle the house. It's not about... And then the house shook and it scared them. Whereas Shirley Jackson manages... Uh, I don't want to say manages, because I don't think Morrison is trying to be scary. I don't think it's a failure. I think it's a deliberate stylistic choice. You know, J- Jackson wants to talk about psychology and ghosts while also scaring you. And I just, I think there's a there's a question about whether or not that might be a key to the difference between sort of literary I fiction and genre fiction. I think you're totally right. Because I think, yeah, Morrison is dealing with... The extent that she's dealing with ghosts or things and supernatural, she's dealing with them actually at a natural level, right? So it's like, we have this bad neighbor. We have this ghost in the basement. We, you know what I mean? Like, it's a very sort of... Everything's, everything's on the same plane, even if these things are abnormal they're still being dealt with as just part of like this kind of living through life whereas hill house you have to drive to get there it's kind of apart from the city you know what i mean like it's a totally exceptional yeah. experience whereas like in morrison you know sometimes you're haunted by by, by ghosts and it sucks and i i but I, yeah what yeah go ahead there's a line early on where she's like yeah all the ex-slaves are haunted yeah and, exactly well, i'm not sure to what extent that's metaphorical or to what extent morrison is saying literally everyone who was a slave has ghosts you know? <laughs> right right because <laughs> at the same point is you know it is, the haunting yeah. in, in beloved is it isn't a metaphor she, they are actually haunted but it is functioning as a metaphor right hill house it's not just a metaphor no least. i i tell you what i read beloved only a couple of years ago i'd I read i'd read it morrison before and i i read her probably too early in high school i liked her but she's probably over my head to be honest i read yeah. her i read beloved a couple of years ago 
And uh, it was one of those great experiences. I had several of those this year, which, you know, we'll talk about at some point in the future, like future months. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, I, when I, like, I picked up a classic, I picked up Beloved, and uh, knowing it was a classic, I was still wary of it for some reason. You know, I was still wary of it being, you know, it's, it's, it's a very intense story. It's very heavy. I was reading it in the summer. But I wanted to read it because I, I really like Toni Morrison. Um, I, I've loved all, you know, I've read her nonfiction. And I've liked that a lot, like Playing in the Dark's great. But, um, but I, man, I blew through that book. I had, I was so surprised at how quickly I read that book um, and how much I liked it because there's a hot take I have in me somewhere, which I'll, which I'll probably never write, which is um, Toni Morrison is funny. Besides being everything else she's good at, she's really funny at times um, that I think, is totally underrated for why her fiction works because there's a wryness to all this tragedy that keeps you at this really relatable level. Um, and I, I don't know. Yeah. I thought beloved was, it was totally deserving of its, you know, of its being a masterpiece kind of an anointed masterpiece. But I also think there's a weird way in which, yeah, uh, it's about ghosts and no one ever, no one ever wants to talk about that as being like a legitimate literary project. I mean, Shakespeare is nothing but ghosts. Like, come on. Um, but I do agree that you're right. Shirley Jackson's trying to scare you just like a mystery novel is trying to keep the murderer from you. It's trying to make you play along. You know what I mean? Like there's a way in which the engagement expectation maybe does determine the genre. That, that That's an interesting idea. I don't know. I, I was thinking about that a bit, partly because I, I'm trying to find ways to argue sort of devil's advocately, because I tend to think that that division, as we talked last time, is just a way for people to be snobs. But because uh, I do think that, you know, The Haunting of Hill House is one of the best written books I've ever read on a technical level. Like, never mind just that it's right. Like, I, I, I would hold its prose up against most, not maybe every other book I've ever read, but like it would be it's one of the best books I've ever read. I yeah, think. she's a great writer. And so. I would really hate for someone to not engage with it because it's a ghost story. You know, that's my no, point. No, and I think I, I think there's I, I think we, 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 we've come back to this last two podcasts because we've read a couple of genre books. But I, I do think it's a legitimate question in the sense of like um, a lot of times it's people just like theorizing based on their own tastes. You know, they're confusing yeah. uh, intellectualism with just like preference. Um, and that drives me crazy. Like, oh, there's a dragon in it. It must be a novel that panders. What panders to who? People who like dragons? Yeah, your novel about rich <laughs> novel about rich New Yorkers panders to Brooklynites. I mean, like everyone's pandering to someone. That's just a dumb way to think about literature, um, I think, as far as writing it off at least. And yeah, but the second way that I think is more interesting to me as someone trying to write and who likes genre is it does feel like genre is usually defined as like, you know, you can define it because it has conventions, right? It has these conventions that every single mystery novel has, supposedly, right? So like there's a detective of some kind and there is a red herring that happens probably more than one red herring. And so like, I feel like the conventional aspect of like, there's a pattern, there's a routine, there's an equation in the very worst genre novels, there's an equation that you just, you plug in the, you know, the numbers and it comes out the same every time. Um, And what bugs me about that though, of course, is that like literary fiction also has conventions (laughs) and it's more wide ranging maybe because um, it's sort of this blah definition but mostly literary fiction is about the dissolution of the self or relationships. And it, especially American fiction in the last 20 years, it's gotten even more rigid in some of the expe- in some of the stuff that's happening. And I, what I like about genre being a thing that's discussed about is that, you know, the best books have always kind of lived somewhere in the middle for me, at least. Um, and yet I do think current writers like this is this big uh, collection that came out last year called her body and other parties. Did you hear about that? 
Yeah, um, I haven't read it, but it's on my short list. Yeah, yeah, so I read it, and it's just straight up. It's just straight up genre, but of course, it's experimental fiction that uses genre to enliven, you know, kind of your usual experimental fiction about like women's relationships or whatever, you know. And so I, there's a way yeah. in which, yeah, like Kelly Link and these other smart people, often women, but you know, George Saunders does it. Um, they're using these tropes to enliven literary fiction which is also very conventional so i don't know i thought that's why that's why i think it's interesting because i think the conventions of one genre can always help you with another genre which i think shirley jackson does you know in this scenario well do you have any more thoughts you want to add no i think that's really everything i wanted to talk about uh i just want to say again i it's a really good book Uh, i guess i do have sort of a weird thing you know i've been going through a lot of sort of weird changes in my life recently and a book about a sort of socially awkward person thrust into a whole new life is you know resonant with me right now let's leave it at that (laughs) (laughs) um was it help was it helpful to read about that or was it sort of just like uh like uncanny uh i don't know uh i i think it's it's helpful as sort of a it's it's always helpful to know that other people have felt like this too if nothing else how's that (laughs) no i just i mean there's also a sense in which like don't grab onto every single weird thing that happens to you as being terribly full of meaning. I think is a decent lesson also at a point like this to remember. Actually, <laughs> Sometimes that's... stuff just happens and people are just about. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really succinct like summary of, yeah, like almost the thesis, the emotional thesis. I do think I was just, well, I asked that dumb question because I do feel like, I mean, this podcast is so niche and like, I'm sure it's mostly just our friends and family listening to it, um, which is totally great. But I, I, you know, I, 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 I don't think I can ever get away from the idea of literature and it's like what it means to people's lives because there's a weird way in which I think like we've almost forgotten the power, like the literary community seems so obsessed with defining like, Hey, books give you empathy. And you know, if your kids read, they're definitely smart. If they watch TV, they're degenerate Philistines. Um, <laughs> and like some of that I probably believe as well only cause my, but I believe it actually less because of the various studies, which, you know, mostly actually point to like smartphones and cell phones and kids being bad as opposed to TV necessarily. But, um, I, my own lived experience is that like books do come along at really good moments. And I definitely have books in my life that are more important to me than other books that are even better um, just because they hit me at the right moment. And I feel like we've just almost forgotten that like the power of anything is usually based on essentially testimony. You know what I mean? Like um, books have been important in my life for a lot of different reasons. The biggest one being like entertainment, you know, um, I'm entertained by books, and I think oftentimes books are more entertaining than a lot of the stuff on Netflix. And that's the basic equation for why I read. But yeah, I don't know. I just so yeah, not that you have to, not, not that I'm asking you to give a you know a, to witness right now. But um, <laughs> but no, I just I think yeah, this book. I mean this this podcast is all about books because I think books have been important to both of us, and uh, and I actually think we've always lived in the castle. I think it was big for me because. I read it right before I was going into my MFA program, you know, and I, I hadn't read a lot of Shirley Jackson before that. And it sort of just blew my mind up, you know, as far as like, okay, I'm preparing to try and be like a serious author. And here's one of like the most, you know, well executed demonstrations of point of view and plot and escalation. And it's about these two girls in this weird home. And, the, you know, like it's just such a different subject matter than a lot of the stuff that I read reviews about in the boring magazines. And so, I don't know. I think she gave me one of the, Shirley Jackson's one of those license givers, right? Where like, I'm allowed to think yeah. most stuff that comes out is bad, you know, because it is, because when it's good, it doesn't matter what it's about. Um, yeah. 
so yeah so i think yeah i just yeah i think shirley jackson's awesome i think she's definitely one of those figureheads that give people permission to like what they like and to you know think it's good so yeah so any other thoughts well, she's definitely else? on my short list to read a lot more of her stuff i, I uh, i've got a couple books i got to get through first that i had purchased and i i keep getting i think i mentioned this to you the other day i keep getting books from my 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 mother is sending me a lot of books that were my dad's. Yeah. So I keep getting whole boxes full of some of it is stuff I knew was coming in. Some of it, like I have a lot of Ayn Rand now. I know. Yeah. I, I, think I, I think you sent like a picture of that uh, group chat. We're on. Yeah. I think that, so, yeah, oh that's, my gosh. Can we, so Ayn do. Rand, don't you think Ayn Rand is just like her biggest problem is that she's like a bad screenwriter who has bad philosophy and writes novels. Like, cause like her, I've never read any Ayn Rand. Oh my gosh. And now I own, oh I feel like God. most of it. I feel like looking you know, at it right now. So. At some point. So I, I want this podcast to do all kinds of things. I do think there's a safe space that most people talk about where it's like, uh, and they talk about, you know, um, reading books that are like controversial, but whenever they talk about that, it's a book that everyone else already loves. Like banned books week has gotten, crap the last couple of years from writers i i sort of like and it makes sense to me because it's always like oh harry potter is a banned book i'm sorry everyone <laughs> in the world has read harry potter you know what i mean like i get that like some people get mad sometimes that the witchcraft was in schools and i remember the hysteria over you know harry potter like i was sort of attached to the evangelical fundamentalist community but honestly everyone in my friendship group still read those books you know like they're not actually yeah. controversial what's controversial is I, like, I remember going to i remember going to summer camp and you know, a Christian summer camp, and most of us had read Harry Potter, and the preacher was like, I feel like you probably shouldn't, because probably the witches are bad. And my favorite was somebody was like, have you read it? And he said, no, no I don't have to read the satanic Bible to know that it's bad. And I, in <laughs> retrospect, there's a few things I want to say about that. First is, shut up. And the second is, okay, but the satanic Bible isn't that book either. Like, it's a dumb <laughs> yeah, book. No, like, it's say, actually not the satanic. You, it's not what you're you've thinking. you made a mistake. Is. So you do actually need to read it. <laughs> no, so yeah, so I, I feel like, honestly, like, I'd be interested in, I, I've read The Fountainhead, but I would be interested in, if we were that inclined to be you know that masochistic i'd be interested in reading atlas shrugged and talking about it you know what i mean because it's a book that i basically already know i disagree with um and i don't want to be like you know the centrist sort of false equivalence guy but also i, I don't know why like what are people scared of when they want to like I, like honestly it's more controversial if i was to say beloved's bad you know what i mean like for all the for all the problems that beloved as a book about you know kind of black people and from a black perspective maybe faced it's actually been a claim since the very beginning. And so, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I yeah. thought about that. My, my first thought was like, oh, Ayn Rand, I'll never read her ever again. And of course, my second thought was like, well, that's probably a good reason to try her out maybe once more if it was for like a public reason. Because for a private reason, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> um, well, I, I did notice, I hadn't realized that Atlas Shrugged is a thousand pages long. So, so yeah, it long. occurred to me that uh, that would be a big read if we wanted to really. <sighs> I think all the books we've read so far, we have expected to like. And it's I true. do think it would be interesting to do a big read, whether it's this one or something else, that we don't expect to like. Yeah. Um, yeah. At some point, that might be worth doing. Because I mean, I... that's what we're doing next. If you want to talk about what we're doing next, yeah, we're yeah. excited about the next book. We're really excited. So I, so yeah, the next book we're doing is by Rebecca West, who is sort of an acclaimed novelist and travelogue writer from England in the 40s and 50s. Um, the book, and 30s, I guess, as well. But uh, the book is called, uh, I'm going to mess it up, Bill. <laughs> uh, Gray Falcon Black Lamb or Black Falcon Gray Lamb? <laughs> You got the right. It's Black Lamb and Grey Falcon. Oh my gosh! So, yeah. <laughs> I just my mind just literally just like they went blank completely. So yeah, okay, I'm actually looking right at my copy. Okay. so I actually double checked. What I, I should started, have done. So <laughs> no, so yeah. So you want to tell people what it's like? We don't know. I, neither of us have read it. I haven't read a lot of Rebecca West. I think I've read a couple of her essays. Um, I I suggested it to Bill. I think because 
a writer that I like who works at Baylor has called it like the best book, maybe period of the 20th century. And so I was like, oh, I like his opinions. I should read that. Um, but based on what we know, Bill, what's what's the book about? <laughs> yeah, so I, I hadn't heard of it at all until Joel mentioned it. And I Googled it and it's just effusive praise everywhere you look. So I'm excited. Uh, it's about it's uh, the full title is Black Lamb and Gray Falcon, colon, A Journey Through Yugoslavia. And it's about a journey Rebecca West and I think her husband took through Yugoslavia and surrounding countryside. I don't have the exact date, but like 1936 or something like right. that. It's like right before the Second World War starts up. And so it's it's just all about what she saw there. And it's a billion pages long and it's supposed to be fantastic. And given what was going on in Eastern Europe in the late 30s, I feel like there ought to be a lot to talk about. Yeah, I can only <laughs> imagine there's going to be, yeah, a, a, a just, you know, like that she's going to obviously like be looking at kind of the the origins of various sorts of fascism and other things. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it too. I, I, I'm always excited when a book is that big and you, you find so many different people saying how good it is. You know what I mean? Cause like that something yeah. went right. <laughs> like there's something that we can talk about that went right. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, Absolutely. So yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll probably do that sometime. Maybe the end of November, maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. Um, late November, early December is what we're shooting for. Um, but it's a big book, so yeah. we'll we'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, and then the last. So I do want to. The last idea we have for the end of the year, which we didn't do last year, I think we're gonna try and do a sort of best books of or whatever book review of 2018, just our our year in reading, basically. So I don't know if anyone who's listening, um, if you want to throw out some more books for us to read, <laughs> we're gonna talk about a lot of books. I think at the end of December and then post it. That's kind of the idea that I had at least. Um, yeah, no, I'm definitely into that. I've read a lot more this year than I have in the last few years, so I should have quite a bit to, to talk about. Yeah, so and I, yeah, we'll talk maybe more about that on the end of the next podcast. But if you want to read along for the next one, I would pick up Rebecca West sooner than, sooner than later because it is a very big book and it will probably be most of what I read for the next three or four weeks. <laughs> so. Yeah, me too, I think. All right, Bill, anything else? No, I think that's it. It was a good time. I'm yeah. glad we did this small read. This <laughs> small... I'm going to not do that, but it was good. It was a good thing. Yeah, okay, man. It was good talking to you. Yes, sir. You have a good All day. Right. You too. Bye. thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast. You can find both of them on SoundCloud if you'd like to hear more of their music. Please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or any other podcasting service, and, uh, you know, we'll see you next time.